This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good morning and welcome to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host, and today I have the distinct pleasure of having Dan Warnsheis. Is that is that the right way to say that, Dan Warnsheis? Warnsheis. Warnsheis. Um Dan uh, is a owner and a winemaker uh, at the Utopia Wine Vineyards in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. And I want to read something from our, our promo, which I don't typically do, but I think it sort of captures a little bit of the flavor, so to speak. And that is that a lot of people familiar with uh, with wines, they, they know the term viticulture, they know that it refers to soil chemistry, to the geography, to climate conditions, uh, to, to irrigation conditions, and, and they know that when it comes to the plants themselves, that the varieties of grape, uh, the, uh, the, the vine's ability to adapt. Uh, they, they, they may not have heard of canopy management, but they know that there are hybrids. And, and yet when it comes to the larger, what I consider to be alchemy of winemaking, what goes into making a, a world-class wine, uh, which starts with world-class grapes, is, is a process that a lot of people aren't uh, familiar with. And so from, the purchasing of the land, uh, uh, planting, uh, growing, harvesting, fermenting, and, and many, many, many other details. There's really a lot that goes into winemaking, and today we're not going to be able to cover all of it, but we'll at least be able to touch on uh, winemaking 101 because Dan is very much an expert uh, in winemaking, and in fact... Um, Unlike uh, most winemakers who may have studied uh, enology and, and the process of making wines uh, and certainly become familiar with the biochemistry of, of various uh, grapes and with the fermentation process itself, Dan actually has chemistry, chemistry roots that uh, run deeper, if you will, because he is a, uh, a fellow with a degree in chemistry who later on uh, cultivated a, a taste for wine, and we'll be talking uh, about that. But let's start um, first by welcoming you to the Business Hour, Dan. Thanks, Ron. It's great to be here. And and then let's have you share with uh, listeners a little bit of, of an overview of what kinds of wines that you produced uh, today and then a little bit about Utopia Wines, uh, and then we'll get into your background uh, leading up to and, and creating a winery. Um, I had the pleasure of tasting several of your varietals and uh, really there's a there's a lot more to some of your wines uh than um what people might even typically uh, associate with uh Oregon pinots and uh I think uh some judges along the way agreed that uh that they tasted great and had some unique quality so th- tell us a little bit about the kinds of wines that uh grapes and wines that are produced uh at Utopia Vineyards Dan Sure. Um, 
And by the way, thank you for those nice comments about my wine. It's always better when other people like them. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I'm here in the northern Willamette Valley, and I'm in the Ribbon Ridge American Viticultural Area, and that's what we call a Region 1 farming area, so it's a cool climate, and that dictates what we plant here. And so the main varietal here and what the Willamette Valley is famous for is Pinot Noir. And my vineyard is primarily planted to Pinot Noir. And then its companion grape in Burgundy is Chardonnay. And I also have about a fourth of the vineyard that's dedicated to my estate Chardonnay. Right now I'm making four different Pinot Noirs, and that's been an evolution over the last, you know, 15, 16 years since I started the vineyard. Um, and then my estate Chardonnay came in in 2012, and since 2009 I've been making a Pinot Noir Rosé, um, which has seen um, a resurgence in its popularity in the last six or seven years. Um, in addition to that, I um, have some friends in the wine industry that own their own vineyards, um, primarily in southern Oregon, and so I'm making a few different Rhone varietals there, um, and then another, um, which include a Grenache and a Viognier, and a Grenache Syrah Morvedra blend or a GSM blend, uh, which is a Rhone blend. And then I do also make uh, an iced wine, um, which is technically an iced wine because we don't freeze the grapes on the vine here. We're not cold enough. We're not in a northern enough climate. So I harvest them and I put the harvest bins into cold storage to freeze them that way and then press them when they're frozen to make a dessert wine. So in uh, a grand total of 10 different wines that I'm producing today, and I'm looking towards adding a couple of Bordeaux varietals in the future and perhaps a sparkling wine. Now, Dan, for um, listeners out there that are not uh, knowledgeable or, you know, wine aficionados, but, you know, can appreciate a good uh, glass of wine, uh, th- they may even have experienced a, um, uh, a, a Viognier but uh, tell us what, what makes a, because you produce a Viognier, tell us uh, about the Viognier and what, what makes a Viognier a Viognier. So Viognier is actually the varietal, and it's a white grown varietal similar to a Roussan or a Marsan or a Cunois. Those are all legal white grown varietals. Uh, that come from the Côte de Rhone, which is along the banks of the Rhone River in the Rhone Valley in southeast France. And some of my favorite wines come from that region. Um, it's not quite as pretentious, if that's the right word, as Bordeaux or Burgundy, and there are some great wine values and some great wines there with a great tradition and history. So it's a, it's a region that I've been interested in since my early days of collecting. You also had mentioned the uh, your Grenache, um, Syrah, Mavodre. Tell us um, a little bit about that wine and maybe a little bit of uh, uh, its roots as well. Sure. So those, again, those are the Rhone varietals, and they are the three base wines that go into a red Rhone blend. There are actually 13 legal red varietals that can be used, and some of the more famous Rhones actually blend uh, a small percentage of Viognier with their Syrah uh, to, make a, to make a more floral characteristic in the red wine. Uh, but Grenache is known for its sweet berry fruit and its rapid ripening and high alcohol. 
so that's really what it brings to the blend. It brings that strawberry, raspberry, red currant fruit flavors, which are very vibrant typically. Um, the Morvedra is more um, for color and tannins. It's very dark purple when it's pressed, um, and it's a very tannic wine having thicker skins. Um, and then the Syrah, we're all familiar with that. It brings those those blue fruit spectrum uh, notes to the wine um, and helps balance out the tannins and the acid from the other two varietals. Now, aside from uh, the the Pinots uh, and the Viognier and the uh, Syrah Mavidre uh, Grenache, uh, you also uh, produce a late harvest Riesling. Tell us about the late harvest Riesling. Yeah, that's a that's a really fun wine to make. And, um, you know, typically an ice wine, uh, those are, those are coming from more northern climates. In North America, you would think, uh, Canada or perhaps Niagara, uh, those areas where it gets cold enough in the fall where the grapes can actually freeze on the vine and they actually harvest them, uh, right as they're frozen. It's very tricky. It doesn't occur just right every year. And when they uh, when they press them, they're frozen, so the sugars are concentrated, and the volumes are very very low, which makes them uh, you know very low yielding. And they bottle them in those in those half bottles or 375 milliliters, and they can be quite expensive because of the uh, the process um, to grow them, and and then the process of vinifying them with uh, with losing much of the volume through the freezing of the of the uh, water in the grapes. So um, they're delightful wines. Um, people use them as dessert wines primarily, but they're also great as an aperitif, and they make great substitutes for Sauternes, um, which is a, you know, a French varietal that they, that they enjoy as an aperitif with foie gras. There, we use the dessert wine here with a little pate and some bread, and it makes a wonderful uh, aperitif to get the juices flowing uh, and something different that uh, that most folks haven't been exposed to. Can can it be treated also uh, like a late harvest Zinfandel? Uh, I not too long ago was introduced to uh, a late harvest Zinfandel where uh, the wine glass um, was dipped into uh, some melted chocolate, so it was on the rim. And uh, and it, it was actually a, a, a very good combination. Uh, uh, it complemented uh, the late harvest Zinfandel uh, nicely. Uh, can that be done? Do you think with a, a late harvest Riesling? Um, you know, it goes with anything that's sweet. The basic rule is that um, whatever you're eating should be sweeter than the wine. That's the basic uh, kind of general rule of thumb. However, a late harvest Zinfandel, I'm going to um, guess that that is a fortified wine, more like a port, um, whereas a, an ice wine, not to confuse them, is um, we're not fermenting all of the sugar and we're not fortifying the wine at the end of the process. So they're actually much lower alcohol, usually about 8.5 to 9.5% alcohol by volume, whereas the, uh, the, the late harvest Zin 
which I'm pretty certain would be a fortified wine, would be more in the 17 to 20% alcohol by volume. Now, uh, Dan, a, l- a lot of people understand um, uh, floral qualities, um, may not be able to taste them always distinctly. Uh, they understand fruit forward. They, they have uh, some idea of what a long finish is. And most people understand uh, complexity. Um, but when you're working with all those different qualities, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, how you as the winemaker uh, aims to have some combination of those flavors. And, and how, do you, how do you achieve that? Let's just uh, take uh, something like a, a wine being extremely fruit-forward. Uh, how, how is that achieved in a, in a Pinot, for example? Sure. So, you know, we're making small production lots, and we're working with our estate fruit, and any winemaker will tell you that, um, that a good wine always begins in the vineyard. It's the best fruit that's always going to make the best wine, and that's why it's so important if you want to make the best wine to own the land and to um, farm the vineyard yourself so that you can bring out those characteristics um, during the growing season. So um, to answer your question, um, weather and the way the fruit ripens um, is a big factor in something like fruit forwardness in the wine. When you have a warmer year, you're going to get riper fruit, and that riper fruit is going to um, transform into more fruit forward flavors, which just frankly means fruitier wines. Right. Um, and Dan, more concentrated fruit flavors. Dan, we're going to be taking a break. When you come, when we come back, we'll, we'll pick up right uh, where we left off. We're here with Dan's Warren's Heese, um, Warren's Ice. I'm going to get it right. Warren's Ice. Perfect. Uh, the, Owner and winemaker at Utopia Wines will be back with Dan right after this break. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. 
This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here with Dan uh, uh, Warnsheis. I'm going to get it uh, right, uh, hopefully, before the program's over. Dan Warnsheis. Dan is the owner and winemaker, uh, not just the owner and not just the winemaker at Utopia Wines uh, and Utopia Vineyards in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. And before the break, we were talking about, uh, you know, what goes into making a very fruit-forward uh, Pinot Noir. And Dan was talking about uh, essentially the the quality of the grapes uh, in the uh, in the ground and also uh, the timing. Is that right, Dan, the timing on, on when you harvest the, the grapes? Absolutely. I mean, there are, there are as you, you know, stated earlier, many variables, and it's the climate during the growing season, and it's also um, how the fruit ripens, not just how ripe it gets, but how it ripens and how evenly it ripens in addition to being fully ripe. And all of those things are factors in the final wine. Generally, by the time I've harvested the fruit, I have a really good idea of what the wine is going to be like. So you're actually aiming for a a combination of qualities. Is that right, Dan? Well, my basic philosophy, and and this is pretty generalized, but what, what we want is we want balance and we want complexity. And there are, you know, many ways of of approaching that as a winemaker you're making many many rapid decisions on the fly at each vintage um and that's that's really where the experience uh is very important and being able to make the the right decisions given uh you know variable sets of circumstances each and every year uh where we have very uh, variable weather here in northern willamette valley well, well let's so, um, let, let's actually drill down for just a moment. When you say balance, uh, what what goes into achieving uh, a a balance? Uh, because I I don't know that a lot of uh, folks, even some wine aficionados, um, you ask ten of them which of uh, the ten wines before them are balanced, and they give you ten different answers. But right. But how do you go about achieving a quote unquote balance? So the 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 basic concept is that you want each element in the wine to be present in equal weight to the other elements in that wine. So 
with wine, you've got the major sensory components being the fruit, which we just talked about, the herbal flavors, potentially um, the spiciness, um, and, you know, each one of these have their own subset of, of flavors that can be described. Um, and then the wood, which comes from the vinification process. So you have these major kind of areas with their own sub-areas. Now, those are from a sensory perspective, but also um, affecting the sensory um, of the wine is going to be the structure and the texture of the wine. And so in addition to the aromas and the flavors, um, you've got the acid, which makes up a very key structural component of the wine, and the tannins and the other polyphenolic compounds that go into, let's say, you know, red wine in this case, um, and those things are going to affect the taste and the texture of the wine as well. So if you have, you know, working with our example of a fruit-forward wine, and, you know, it's going to be lush or rich in, in that fruit, then you want a texture to match that lushness. Um, whereas if you had, say, a white wine where you had uh, less robust fruit and maybe higher acid, then you would then you would want to dial back the amount of texture in order to balance that wine out. So it's a matter of balancing out the different uh, elements within the wine and getting them to, um, you know, in the finished wine to be of equal weight so that nothing sticks out and that you get not only the balance but also the complexity. And, and like I said, there's a number of ways to, to approach that. And becoming a winemaker is learning you know, developing your own style first and then, you know, coming up with the methodology to create that style. And let's let's look at the timetable. The, the grapes have uh, been harvested. Uh, you're now beginning the winemaking process. How is it, is it hours, days, Weeks, uh, you know, certainly when the wine is uh, been bottled and it's 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 uh, uh, developing a character um, after the process, um, which you know you you don't often know exactly what the quality of the wine will be in a year or two until you taste it. But in that period, after the grapes have been harvested. Is it hours? Is it days? Is it weeks that you're experimenting uh, with uh, with flavor, Dan? So um, from the time we pick the fruit to the time the wine is released in the market, and, and let's use Pinot Noir as our example because obviously whites and reds, there are different processes. Whites are, are more rapid. Um, but with Pinot Noir or any other um, red wine, most other red wines at least, you're going to... Uh, be about a year and a half from the time you pick the fruit before that wine actually uh, goes into the marketplace. Now, the most intense part, obviously, is once you've harvested the fruit. It's very, very important, and you see um, when when vineyards are picking that they're picking in the wee hours of the morning, even sometimes um, late at night, um, because they want the fruit to stay cool. Um, heat is, you know, is a disease vector and we don't want the fruit to get warm. So we're going to pick it early in the morning. We're going to get it into the winery as quickly as possible while it's still cool. 
and then it's going to go through a sorting process. I like to sort in the vineyard as the fruit is being loaded in the bin and then sort at a cluster level and then at an individual berry level um, during the during the sorting phase, which um, is the French term is incubage. And once you get all of the uh, fruit sorted into the various fermenters, I use small lot fermenters. I have 12 different Pinot Noir clones in my vineyard, and I identify each and every one of those as an individual wine, and then I'm going to blend them together at the end depending on um, my sensory evaluation of the wine and how I want to assemble the, the finished wines um, depending on that growing season. So now you've got the fruit in, you've sorted it, it's in the tank, and you know, you've know you added your, your sulfites to it to keep the bacteria, uh, to keep it free from bacteria because when you're in that pre-fermentation maceration phase, which we call cold soak in Pinot Noir vinification, uh, you're in an open top fermenter and the, and the um, fruit is exposed to the air. And so we want to keep it safe. And one of the ways we do that is by adding uh, sulfites to the wine prior to, prior to fermentation, uh, right there at the crusher. But it's, it's a tiny amount. I want to stress that. Um, usually anywhere from 40 to 80 parts per million. You know, a can of Pepsi has over 300 parts per million of sulfites. So, um, you know, just to put it in perspective, sulfites are everywhere, and um, we're talking about very, very minuscule amounts here. Um, so you, now you've, you've got it there, and with Pinot Noir, because it is a thin-skinned grape, we want to extend the amount of time that the must, which is the liquid portion of wine, is in contact with the skins. And the French term for that is maceration. So we want an extended maceration with the skins so that we can get more extraction and that's why we do a cold soak where we've kept the temperature in the tanks very cold just above freezing usually and we use a process called snow coning uh, where you can use either liquid nitrogen or uh, co2 and turn it into a frost through a special emit emitter and that um, frost uh, is sprayed over the surface of the cap of the wine and that keeps it moist which helps keep bacteria off it and it also um, sublimates into gases that clear the headspace of air and keeps it and keeps it safe during that extended maceration. Now, eventually, you're going to uh, begin to ferment, even if you don't inoculate. Um, and I sometimes I inoculate some of my lots. Mostly, I do native ferments, which means I'm not using commercial yeast, um, but I'm using the yeast that's present in the in the vineyard and then whatever the dominant strain is in the winery and is going to finish it. So um, after maybe, I'm a little bit different. I do very extended cold soak, sometimes up to 25 days. To put it in perspective, an average cold soak is about five days, but I find that I get better aromatics in my wine. I've done a lot of experimentation with this. Um, if I extend that cold soak period, um, it's controversial, but I like the wines better when I do that. Um, and then um, eventually, though, the wine is going to begin to ferment, and then it's very important to bring the temperature up in the tank. Red wines like to ferment between 65 and 85 degrees, so I'll generally warm them up to about 75 to 80 degrees, and at that time I will um, start to monitor the fermentation by tracking the amount of bricks, which are the basic sugars in the wine, and as those begin to get depleted, 
based on what I've seen in my, my YAN numbers, which are the nutrients in the must, um, I will feed it at about one-third sugar depletion, typically some nutrients, um, in order to prevent what's known as a stuck fermentation. So now, the fermentation cur- – sorry, go ahead. No, no, go – what I was going to say is that we're going to be taking a break here in just a moment, but um, – uh, I want to remind listeners out there, uh, because I think some of them are finding it really fascinating to learn just how many steps there are uh, in uh, achieving uh, a, a, a taste. And uh, I, I had a question, but I'm going to wait until after the break. In fact, why don't we go to break, and when you come back, we're going to pick up where you left off. We're talking about what goes into achieving a particular taste. And I want to know, like, uh, when you start tasting the grapes uh, out in the vineyard uh, and when you start forming some sense of what could be combined, we'll talk about that and and more about what goes into making world-class wine with Dan Warnsheet-Seiss and We'll be back to talk about the Utopia Vineyard and the various wines right after this break. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host, and we're here with Dan Warnsheis, the owner and vintner, uh, chief winemaker at Utopia uh, Vineyards and uh, Utopia Wines in the Willamette Valley in Oregon, uh, which is the region of the United States uh, that is closest to, would it be the Burgundy region uh, of France, uh, Dan? Exactly, yeah, exactly. And and tell us, uh, before we pick up where we left off, tell us where uh, or what it is that makes uh, that part of the country, uh, the state of Oregon, and to some extent a little bit of Washington, uh, like the Burgundy region. So it's the latitude. We're just above the 45th parallel latitude here, and the 45th parallel latitude is halfway between the equator and the North Pole. 
So once you get above that, you're in a true cool climate. And the burgundy clones that we use are early ripeners, and they are particularly well-suited for a cool climate. And if you get a globe and you draw a line from uh, Willamette, from the northern Willamette Valley, say Yamhill County where we are, which is really the heart of America's Burgundy, across the Atlantic Ocean from here, across the U.S. and then across the ocean to Burgundy, France, it's almost a straight line. They are a little bit further north than us and a little bit cooler and a little bit wetter, and that affects um, their wines, um, and that's what makes them different. But we're the closest thing to it um, here in the, in, in the U.S. And, and there's not too much in between the, uh, or, or the West Coast and the East Coast in terms of um, making the making of Pinot Noirs. Uh, and other cool climate wines, but when you get to the the East Coast, there start to be uh, a few states that are beginning to uh, produce wines and have done so consistently over the last couple of decades. Who who and what other regions uh, east of the Mississippi do you consider uh, beginning to make uh, pretty decent cool climate wines? Well, I mean, there's some there's some pretty good stuff coming out of Virginia. Uh, not really cool climate, however. They would be more of the Rhone and Bordeaux varietals, typically. So think Viognier and Cabernet Franc, which is a Bordeaux varietal, one of the legal Bordeaux varietals. Um, those, those are probably the most popular and some of the best wines from there. And Virginia is producing a lot of wine um, these days. Um, and then you have a number of other states. There's actually at least one winery in every single state now. Um, many of them are importing grapes, but, but also many of them are growing their own fruit. Another place that, that, that I would definitely mention would be New York. You know, you've got Hudson Valley and Finger Lakes and doing some really nice stuff up there with uh, ice wines and other white varietals. So, you know, there's a, there's a plethora of wine. It's a, it's a sea of wine out there these days, and consumers have uh, a lot of choices, and it's a really good thing. I know sometimes it can be overwhelming, but... Um, you know, it, it's best to try different things. Don't get in a rut. Don't be afraid to try new, new varietals and, and new regions because that's half the fun of of, uh, of the wine scene. Well, in, in in fact, there are states like Michigan that are starting to produce some pretty decent wines too. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, my alma mater, Michigan State, has a whole bunch of test plots all around the state and. Since I'm in the Alumni Association, I get their agriculture newsletter, and so I know a little bit about they're, they're doing a lot of experimentation with cool, cold climate varietals. And um, they're having some success, particularly in the um, southwest portion of the state. They have been affected the last few winters here where they had the, you know, the, the polar vortex and some of the really, really damaging um, cold spells that they had, uh, I don't think last year, but previous couple years where they, they actually lost some of their vines, but, but they're continuing and, you know, it's, it's a lifelong process. Um, in fact, one lifetime isn't enough. It takes, it takes, you know, decades and, and, and more in order to, to refine the varietals and the, and the techniques and the vinification process, um, to make world class wines, but, but they've got a good start. Yeah, you mentioned test plots. Are they 
growing grapes in different parts of Michigan, north to south, and just seeing what uh, is yielded from the soil and from that given climate? I guess they would uh, consider exactly. different regions to have microclimates. Exactly, and, and different varietals. So they're, 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 they're forming these, these test plots in different geographic regions using different uh, cold climate varietals to see what's going to work best in those microclimates, to your point. Uh, before the break, you were talking about uh, you know some of the the, the processes, uh, some of the the details that you have to consider when you're uh, creating uh, a taste, uh, and and it brought to mind that the characteristics of the wine are so related to the characteristic of the grapes, and since we were talking about the timing of when the grapes are harvested and how that influences. Uh, the taste of a wine. Um, how often are you? Are how many stages are you doing tastings out uh, uh, in the fields? So as we approach harvest, and I mean you know several weeks prior, I will begin um, my qualitative analysis of the fruit by tasting it, um, and then as we and then I can do field measure measurements of the ripeness of the fruit with a device called a refractometer that. Uh, separates the light and gives me a reading of bricks degrees and bricks is brix and it is a um, quantitative measure of the ripeness of fruit measuring the basic sugar molecules in the juice so it's it's actually measuring the solids in the juice by refracting light through them and it gives you a, a degree reading and with pinot noir we want to be between about 22 and 24 Hey, Ron, if you don't mind, I'd like to tie up that loose end on the vinification process. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so right before the break, we were, we were talking about cold soak and fermentation. So we, went, we, you know, we harvested the fruit. We went in and we sorted it uh, multiple times. We got only the best fruit into the tank. Um, we're now in our cold soak, and we're doing pump overs and punch downs to keep the cap moist and to get uh, the the cap down uh, into and break up uh, the, the different berries and release the sugars so that when they do begin to ferment that they're, that they're available uh, for the yeast to consume. Um, I mentioned that I do extended cold soaks, which is a controversial thing, um, and it's risky, but I like the aromatics better on my wines that way, um, as much as 25 days, which is about five times the average. And then eventually we, we mentioned that we're going to begin to ferment at some point um, even if we're going native and we're going to increase the temperature in the tank, the fermentation curves are different depending on the site and the varietal, but average is something like 360 hours, so you're talking a couple of weeks, maybe a little bit more. So now you've been, um, say, you know, three weeks of cold soak and a couple of weeks of fermentation since you brought in that fruit and sorted it. So now you're looking at five or six weeks uh, in those tanks. Now, once it's fermented and it and the wine is dry or near dry, then you want to get it out of those tanks where it's exposed to air as soon as possible. And the way we do that is we drain and press those tanks. So we're going to drain out all of the juice, and we're going to typically, there's more than one way at every step, there's more than one method, right? But typically you're going to take it to a settling tank, and you're going to leave it there for about 48 hours until you can measure the residual sugar in the wine to make sure the wine is dry and also to let the gross leaves settle to the bottom of the tank, and then you're going to rack out of that tank into barrel. So that whole process could take as long as seven or eight weeks, 
in those tanks. Now you're in barrel, and you've depleted all the SO2 that you used at the crusher. And so the first thing that you want to do is get through malolactic fermentation, which is your secondary barrel fermentation, um, and keeping those barrels topped off to keep them, you know, free of any bacteria, um, and get through MLF. Now you can uh, inoculate for MLF as well using uh, an ML uh, bacteria, and, um, you know, it depends on the year and the condition of the fruit. Usually for me, if I'm going to do that or I'm just going to let it go, um, it will eventually go on its own. And um, then you're going to monitor that, and that's where we're converting the malic acid, which can be fairly um, sharp edge, into lactic acid, which is what gives wine its creaminess. It's the same acid that's in milk, and it softens the wine. And now, as soon as you get through ML, then you're going to get your first um, SO2 readings, and you're going to um, do your SO2 addition because you've now depleted everything. And then the most important thing from that point on, just to summarize, is monitoring um, your molecular SO2 and your free SO2 and your total SO2. You need a certain, uh, you know, volume of free SO2 in order to ensure that the wine is clean and safe. And so from that point on, the most important thing that we monitor and add to the wine are the SO2. And then eventually, once the wine is done barrel aging, we're going to rack it out of those barrels depending on a winemaker's blend. I might have a hundred barrels that I'm going to make four wines out of. Um, and so I've got to determine based on my sensory evaluation of those barrels, um, how I'm going to assemble the final wines. And then they're going to go into their own tanks in preparation for bottling. And typically I will cross flow filter the wines, which removes any suspended particles. Um, with red wines, we typically don't find them like white wines. So it's just filtering. And then once that's all done, then we're going to go to um, bottling and we will uh, use a cartridge filter to, to ensure sterility <coughs> at that point um, during the bottling process. And that's a quick summary. That whole process could be a year and a half with Pinot Noir from the time we harvest and, um, to get it out. And, and so along with all those quantitative uh, uh, analyses that are going on, you're actually uh, – influencing the chemistry and measuring the chemistry you're are you you're you're doing uh what you're calling sensory evaluation is that your tastings yeah that is actually tasting the wine and scoring each barrel so i'll i'll taste and score each barrel at least a half a dozen times prior to to blending now as you uh became experienced did you have fewer and fewer surprises um uh, related to the taste, given what the chemistry was, you know, you everything on paper appeared to be uh, uh, balanced, but the taste may not have been balanced, or vice versa. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a matter of you know honing your palate and um, you know relating the quantitative analysis to the wine to that to that sensory, pre, you know, to your point, and and getting the enough experience to build your confidence in what it is that you're that you're tasting and how to assemble those wines i personally have always been good at picking out the good thing if you give me 10 things i can evaluate them and pick out the good one and i've just always had a natural um ability to do that um and that certainly helps me quite a bit in that final step um to your point, though, about the chemistry of the wine, if we're going to do adjustments, and, you know, I, 
I didn't really cover that, but that's going to be done typically at the very beginning uh, when when the wine is still juiced. So, you know, we measure things like the bricks, which we've talked about, and people talk about bricks a lot, which are, you know, the indicate the, the ripeness of the fruit. But we're also looking at the titratable acidity, and we're also looking at the pH of the wine. Um, and those things are also very important. And we don't just pick on bricks, but we pick on TA and pH and bricks as a combination. And if something is out of whack because we had, you know, a heat spike at the end or we had underripe fruit because we just didn't get enough sunlight or uh, light diffusion to, to ripen the grapes during that growing season, then we're going to know that because we're measuring, you know, we're doing chemical analysis of the wine. And we know if we're either deficient in any area or if we're off the mark we want to be. Right. And we're going to, we're going to adjust it right up front. Exactly. Prior to fermentation is the best time to do that. And, uh, and Dan, we're going to take another break and, uh, we're going to pick up on, uh, this process of winemaking and people can surely hear your passion and your knowledge about the process. Uh, we're here with Dan Warnsice. We'll be back with Dan Warnsice of Utopia Wines right after this break. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction and medical director of the Atlanta Healing Center. Please join me on Tuesday afternoons at 4 p.m. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here with Dan Warnsice of Utopia Wines. Uh, the Utopia Vineyards uh, are uh, really quite beautiful, I have to say. If you should have the opportunity to get to the Willamette Valley, which is just south, uh, you can be at Dan's Winery uh in i'd say 45 minutes easily out of uh, portland is that about right dan that's exactly right from the airport yeah and um you know he's got a tasting room uh, right there uh, uh, among the vineyards and uh it's 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 beautiful country it's it's uh, not just uh, ideal for grape growing from the standpoint of the uh, geology and the geography and the climate it's just uh, very very pretty and that brings me to having you uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to uh, acquire the land where you are, Dan, because you told me that story, and I thought that was a great story. Uh, so let's go back to uh, when you thought 
you really might jump into this with both feet, which means you were going to make an investment in in some land. And uh, how did you come to that region? And then how did you come to that specific um, farmland? Sure. So um, uh, we talked about this when, when we spoke previously, and, and I had a wine business in Napa, California previously. And um, unfortunately for me, I was never going to own the land in Napa, so um, it was it was uh, you know beyond my reach financially. Um, but I was very uh, you know involved and passionate about wine. Um, I started as a collector. I um, turned that into a business of rare wines um, and ran that business for about 15 years. And through that affiliation, met a number of of winemakers and wineries, and that's where I got to work, harvest, and crush down there to hone my winemaking skills, and then got me really thinking about owning the land um, and, and living the lifestyle, which, which I had become quite enamored with and, and admired um, and aspired to. And that um, just happened to coincide with um, my career. I, I had a career in high tech, as you know, and in my very early days, I worked for a, an Oregon company called Tektronix, and we spent time in the Portland area doing technical training um, in the in the mid '80s um, when I worked there, the mid to late '80s. And I discovered Oregon Pinots very early on, um, and so that kind of planted the seed. I can remember very vividly um, the first time I visited Oregon wine country, sitting um, uh, you know above a vineyard at a picnic table, having some lunch and and just, you know, imagining what it would be like to have that lifestyle. And I never really lost that thought. And in 1998, my business partnership in Napa dissolved, and um, I started a search. That same year, I read an article in a magazine that um, declared Willamette Valley would become the next Napa in the next 10 to 20 years. So I started a search that actually lasted two years um, researching um, all of the um, petition for sub-AVAs of the Willamette Valley and coming up and networking with growers and winemakers to really um, understand the best areas. And I, I knew the characteristics of what I was looking for. And after a two-year search, it led me to a farm at the bottom of Ribbon Ridge, which was for sale. And when I got there, I literally um, thought, well, this is okay, and I was prepared to to uh, invest there, but I looked up the hill and I saw this ideal spot, and it, it was really ideal in every single way. Um, it was a horse pasture at the time and a horse farm, and it was ideal elevation, orientation, um, the soils were already tested, everything about it was great. Unfortunately, it wasn't for sale, and so I decided, um, since there was a small ranch house there, that I would just go up and ask the owner if he was interested in selling. And so I did. I drove up the road, and I um, approached the door and knocked, and um, the owner was home, and um, I asked him if we'd be interested in selling his farm, and the, his first response to me was to give me the price he wanted. Um, and, so, and so I thought I maybe had a 1% chance of actually acquiring um, that farm, and it turned out that he was looking at a larger farm down the road to take his horses and he already knew in his mind what he needed and and that was the price he quoted me and uh suffice it to say within about three weeks we closed the escrow in october of 2000 and i immediately began the development of the vineyard 
That story to me is just uh, so characteristic of a uh, a, a true uh, uh, serendipitous uh, uh, moment in time. The guy was ripe uh, to be asked, uh, and you had no idea um, that he would be, even be willing to sell. And as it turns out, you feel like you got a reasonably good deal. Uh, he was certainly satisfied, and and you felt like you uh, you got a good deal. And I am certain that the land has a value that is multiples of of what you had to pay. Um, I have a question for you, and, and 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 there there are probably folks out there who have had uh, the idea that that maybe they would. Uh, uh, become a farmer or a grape grower or a wine maker, you know, something that's totally different from what they're doing uh, today, um, may have some money to invest, uh, uh, but really don't understand um, how expensive it might be to try to do that in a place like uh, Napa or Sonoma. Uh, what, what would you venture uh, an acre, uh, a range, uh, you know, because it's going to be, it's going to differ from sub-region to sub-region in Napa, Sonoma, what would you venture to say uh, an acre goes for uh, low to high in in Napa, Sonoma these days? So I think um, in Napa proper, you're looking at about um, somewhere around $500,000 an acre, which is coincidentally um, just about the same price I paid for 19 acres here on Ribbon Ridge in the fall of 2000. Yeah, uh, isn't that uh, uh, amazing that uh, uh, that uh, that region should become uh, uh, that 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 land should become so so expensive? Um, but of course, it's linked to the value of uh, the wines that are produced there. And uh, I think that I said that your land is probably worth multiples of what you paid. There's no doubt that as the Willamette Valley gets recognized for world class wines, and by the way. Um, it wasn't too much longer after you started making wines that you began winning some awards. Is that right, Dan? Yeah, I've been I've been very fortunate. Um, my um, my first real commercial vintage was 2007, and um, I am a firm believer in open blind competitions. I prefer those to um, any of the industry trade journals or any of the uh, you know the the typical. Um, consumer wine magazines. I prefer the more professional uh, open blind competitions, meaning that it's open, like here we have what's called the Oregon Wine Awards, and it's open to any commercial Oregon winery, and um, it's, it's what they call a single blind competition where they um, know the the region and they know the varietal, however they don't know the producer, and they don't know the price of the wine when they're evaluating it, which I think gives it a lot of credibility. My first entry was my um, 2007 Estate Pinot Noir, which was the only wine I made that year from the Utopia Vineyard. And um, in my first entry, I won the gold medal for Pinot Noir over $35. And that was a that was a pretty good start. But in 2008, I won the double gold, which is the best in class. And my um, 2008 Estate with my 2008 Estate Pinot Noir, and also that same year. It was selected as the number two wine in Oregon of all varietals, and that is really what put me on the map. Since then, I've been um, on the best 50 wines list three more times, twice with my Chard and twice with my Pinots, and every year for the last eight years, I've won gold and or 
double gold for my pinots, which I'm now producing four of those each year from the vineyard, including three reserves. So and it's been a it's been a fun ride. I should point out to listeners that they're they're, they're not going to find um, your wines on the shelf of uh, any of the supermarkets. Uh, in their uh, communities, and for that matter, maybe not even in any of the high-end wine shops, uh, because it's a very uh, limited allocation. You're, you're making very small quantities uh, of high-end uh, wine, and uh, yet they can get your wines if they go to www.utopiawine.com. Is that, is that right? Or yeah, is it- absolutely. Or they can visit me here in the tasting room. Um, and I have a very, um, you know, successful wine club, and I, I put a lot of effort into developing my own direct channels, and I, I sell ninety five percent of my a plus of my wines directly to consumers. Dan, you are a very lucky man. You, uh, you, you had a dream. You, you, uh, you followed up on it, and now you're a, a successful winemaker. Uh, and I want to say thank you for taking the time to be on the business hour. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure, and uh, I hope that uh, all your listeners will come and visit me someday. Well, uh, hopefully they will. We've been listening to Dan Warnsize, uh the owner and winemaker at Utopia Wines. You can uh, find him just south of Portland, about 45 miles, and you've been listening to the Business Hour here at America's Web Radio. We're on Fridays from 10 to 11. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you on the radio and the Internet next week. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.